You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it, and I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Today's episode will be slightly different in that the questions today have been asked by our patients and caregivers on LLS community. LLS community is just that, a community of blood cancer patients and caregivers. LLS created a social online platform to provide support, trusted information, and resources, and help patients and caregivers feel connected to one another. We believe that one should not have to face a blood cancer diagnosis alone, so we hope that those listening will visit www.lls.org forward slash community and join a vibrant and interactive community. Now, to tell you a little about our guest today, Monica Bryant is a cancer rights attorney, speaker, and author dedicated to improving access to and availability of quality information on cancer survivorship issues. Monica is the co-founder and chief operating officer for Triage Cancer, a national nonprofit organization that provides education on the practical and legal issues that may impact individuals diagnosed with cancer and their caregivers through events, materials, and resources. Throughout her career, Monica has provided hundreds of educational seminars, written articles, blogs, and co-authored a book published by the American Bar Association called Cancer Rights Law, an Interdisciplinary Approach. Thank you so much for joining us today, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. And Monica is no stranger to the bloodline. We actually recorded an episode with her titled, What You Need to Know About Cancer and Health Insurance. So we encourage you to listen to that episode by visiting www.thebloodline.org and selecting episodes and finding, again, the episode titled, What You Need to Know About Cancer and Health Insurance. Monica, I was on AmericanBar.org, and I was reading an article in which they quoted your sister, Joanne Fazi Morales, who is also a cancer rights attorney. Yes, listeners, two sisters are cancer rights attorneys. How awesome is that? And she mentioned that because the health and legal issues can be so intertwined, there's a great deal of opportunity for attorneys to advocate on behalf of individuals diagnosed with cancer and their families and to help them navigate through a plethora of systems and procedures. She goes on to say that while people diagnosed with cancer face a variety of issues with their health insurance, finances, and employment, many don't think of these as legal issues that require a lawyer. Can you go into more detail about that? Absolutely. So one of the things that we hear frequently is people who are trying to navigate all of these things that come up after a cancer diagnosis, like health insurance and what to do about their jobs and how can they take time off. And then if they have to take time off, what are they going to do for income? And so all of these things come up that people now have to become experts in navigating. And those are actually all rooted in laws. Our right to purchase health insurance is given to us through a law. Our right to take time off or to have protections in the employment arena come through laws. But most people don't think of the law when they think about how to navigate these systems. And so that's really what we're trying to do at Triage Cancer is to empower individuals to understand the law, that it doesn't have to be this scary thing that you need a lawyer to help you through. And then once they understand the laws, that they feel empowered to become their own advocates to navigate these systems and exercise the rights and benefits that they're entitled to. Monica, I like that you mentioned become an expert. And I think that is something that is just so mind-blowing to me because health insurance is so complex and you know, cancer diagnosis is so complex. So you're thrown into this world 
And you have to think to yourself, okay, how am I going to actually survive with this diagnosis? And then to have to understand your diagnosis alongside something so complex like health insurance. When you say become an expert, it's just so true that you have to completely shift gears and acquire so much knowledge so quickly. And sometimes it's really time against the clock, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we always joke that there should be a class in high school on understanding health insurance and finances, because it's something that every single one of us in this country has to navigate at some point, but none of us are ever taught how to do that. Right, right. It's true. That's so true. I mean, in high school, we learned so many other things, and I feel like this is something that we should learn relatively early. Yeah, it's part of that whole Adulting 101 series, right? (laughs) Exactly. So jumping into Medicare and the questions that we received surrounding that, Medicare is a national health insurance program in the U.S. It began under the Social Security Administration and now administered by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And it provides health insurance for Americans aged 65 and older, but also for some younger people with disability status as determined by the Social Security Administration. So... Monica, to kind of give our listeners a basic practical understanding of Medicare, questions we got were, of course, what is it? What does it mean to a cancer patient? And what's the difference between Medicare versus private insurance? Sure. So Medicare, again, is a federal program, and it's for individuals who are over 65 or have been receiving Social Security Disability Insurance for two years. And Medicare is broken up into four parts. Part A provides inpatient hospital insurance. Part B is going to be medical insurance, so when you see the doctor or lab work or tests. Part D is for prescription drugs. Now, there's a misconception for many that Medicare is actually free once you reach a certain age or you have a disability, and and that's not true. In fact, there are going to be different costs for each of the different parts. So for some people, it's challenging to have to navigate three different parts with three different cost structures. And so an alternative to that was created in Part C, also known as Medicare Advantage Plans. And these operate as HMOs or PPOs, and they look a little bit more like what people are used to with private or employer-sponsored insurance, where all of your care is managed under one plan. So you sort of have two lanes you can drive in. You can get all of your services in a Part C Advantage plan, or you can have the separate parts of A, B, and D. There's pros and cons to all of this. Uh, When you have Part A and Part B that's referred to as Original Medicare, and with Original Medicare, you can go and see any doctor in the country that accepts Medicare. When you compare that with a Part C or an Advantage plan, those are going to have smaller networks of providers, and so you're going to have to make sure that you see one of those providers in that network. Of course, there's many, many more differences and pros and cons, but that's sort of a high-level overview. So does Part C also include what Part D would include, which is the medications? Great question. It depends. There's many Part C plans that include prescription drug coverage, but if somebody chooses a Part C plan that does not include prescription drug coverage, they would have the opportunity to pick up a standalone Part D plan. And Part D, is that the one that you must pay for? I always thought that Part A and Part B. So Part A is typically what we refer to as premium free for most Americans that have worked and paid into the system. There are still some other costs like co-insurance associated with Part A, but it's typically going to be premium-free, and premiums are what you pay monthly just to have the insurance. With Part B, there is a monthly premium, even if you've paid into the system. This year, for most people, the Part B premium is $135.50 a month, and then Part D premiums are going to depend on the plan chosen. So they vary depending on which plan people choose. I believe the national average this year is somewhere around $33 a month for Part D plans. We received a question, Monica, that said, if I move to a different state, does my Medicare supplement insurance go with me? So first, let's talk about supplemental insurance. (laughs) So 
When somebody has original Medicare, which again is part A and part B, part B has a 20% coinsurance, which means that after the person has paid their deductible, they're responsible for 20% of all of their medical costs for the year. And there's no limit to that. There's no out-of-pocket maximum. And when you start thinking about cancer care and you realize that some or many chemotherapies are covered under Part B, that person's going to be paying 20% of every single chemotherapy that they receive. So that can get incredibly costly. So one way to deal with that is by purchasing an additional insurance plan called a supplemental insurance plan or a Medigap plan. And the Medigap plans can pick up those extra out-of-pocket costs. Now, Medigap plans, you have choices and they're identified by letters A through N. And where that gets really confusing for people is we can't confuse Medigap plans A through N with Medicare parts A through D. So because they both use letters, it's really confusing for a lot of people as to what they have um, and what it covers. Now, these Medigap plans are very, very useful because they help cover those out-of-pocket costs, and you can only get them when you have original Medicare. So remember I said with original Medicare, you can go see any doctor in the country that accepts Medicare. So that Medigap plan, also known as a supplemental plan, will go with you even if you change states. That's very different than a Part D plan or a Part C plan because those are gonna have networks. And when you move, you may actually be moving out of those plans networks. And so you'd actually have to find new plans in those cases. Now, somebody's diagnosed with cancer and they don't have the supplemental to pick up an extra, you're saying 20%. Can somebody sign up for that at any time, or is there a certain time that you have to sign up for that? So Medicare has a bunch of different enrollment periods depending on where you are in the process, but every single year between October 15th and December 7th is the Medicare open enrollment period. And this is where people have the opportunity to switch from original Medicare to a Medicare Advantage plan, or maybe from an Advantage plan to original Medicare, or they can also pick up a Medigap plan. Now, of course, with everything we talk about, the devil's in the details. So when someone first becomes eligible for Medicare, they have what's called a guaranteed issue for the supplemental plans, which means they have to be sold the supplemental plans and they can't be charged more because of pre-existing conditions. But let's say they didn't pick it up when they were first eligible, now they have a cancer diagnosis and they think this might actually be very helpful for me. They can shop around for a Medigap plan, but those Medigap providers can actually charge people more because of their pre-existing condition. And they can impose something called a pre-existing condition exclusion period. So that could be up to six months where the Medigap plan isn't going to cover anything related to their pre-existing condition. And what we see happening is people find out this information and they think, well, then what's the point? If it's going to be six months that they're not going to cover anything related to my pre-existing condition, it doesn't make sense for me to pay to have this plan. But we really encourage people to do the math because if you think about it, even if it's six months that Medigap plan doesn't cover anything, if someone's getting chemo for a year or for two years or other types of cancer treatment, having coverage for the second six months of the year and then moving forward can still save thousands of dollars. So we really want people to not just sort of discount picking up these plans because of that six-month exclusion period, that they should do the math. Sure. I know that you mentioned a pre-existing condition we were mentioning in regards to Medicare, but a lot of people are asking about pre-existing conditions and if that would actually deter private as well as public insurances for them. So are we talking about health insurance or other types of insurance? Health insurance. Okay. So under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as the ACA or Obamacare, it's all the same thing. 
It was a law signed uh, in 2010, and that said that starting January 1st of 2014, insurance companies can no longer deny selling somebody a policy or covering services related to a pre-existing condition. Insurance companies also can't charge more if somebody has a pre-existing condition. So the one place where that doesn't exist in health insurance is the Medigap plans or the supplemental plans I was just talking about. But for other types of insurance, so private insurance that's purchased directly from a health insurance company, insurance you get through your employer or Advantage plans, they cannot discriminate based on a pre-existing condition under the Affordable Care Act. Thank you. So are there any updates on if Medicare can or will be allowed to negotiate prices with pharmaceutical companies? So as of right now, they cannot, but there's several proposals that are floating out there in Congress to maybe pass some legislation to allow them to do that. And then several of the presidential candidates currently campaigning are also discussing that as an option. As a cancer rights attorney, what conversations are you guys having? I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's not something that we're totally involved in. We are really focused on teaching people the systems that we have right now so that they can navigate them, Mm -hmm. but then also encouraging people to engage in advocacy. So if this is something that they care about, they should absolutely be talking to their elected officials about it and how it's impacting actual real life Americans. Absolutely. Advocacy is so important because as our listeners know, LLS exists to find cures and ensure access to treatments for blood cancer patients. In order to advance this mission, our LLS Office of Public Policy supports a policy agenda aimed at accelerating the development of new treatments for cancer and breaking down the barriers to care that patients often encounter. So to your point, advocacy is so important and there's so much that we can do to get involved and to share our voice so others hear our voice and see that we're really doing our best trying to get the best treatment for cancer patients. Sure, and if anybody wants to join our advocacy efforts, you can just go to lls.org forward slash advocacy and all of our take action topics are right there for you. We're there to improve cancer care for pediatric patients, promote insurance access for cancer patients, improving medication access, and making the healthcare system sustainable. So we do have many things to offer in your local as well as federal agencies. Along the lines of advocacy, we received a question that said, what can be done to make employers more aware of employees with cancer? The employment arena is a little bit tricky when we start talking about cancer because certainly there are legal rights that exist to protect both employers and employees, but we also want people to know that they have some choices around disclosure. And it comes as a surprise to a lot of people that they don't necessarily have to tell their employer or their potential employer, they're in the job search process, that they've had a cancer diagnosis. A lot of times we hear people say, oh, I wish I would have known I would have made different choices. But even if you're trying to access legal protections and rights, you may be able to do it in a way where you protect your privacy and the specifics around your diagnosis if that's important to you. But then I would also say that people shouldn't feel like they don't have the right to exercise those benefits if they want to keep it private. I know that a lot of employers are actually much more generous than what the law requires. So people should be checking employee handbooks and manuals and policy and procedures documents to see what the employer lays out, but then also exploring what the employer already has. Right. And discrimination can happen during the hiring process. When employees overlook qualified candidates because of fear of the impact of cancer on their ability to do their jobs. And I think it's so important, like you said, for patients to know their rights, especially if they're in the position to work, knowing that they don't have to disclose information regarding their diagnosis, you know, whether it be in the interview or, or even after. So I think, it, like you said, I think it's very important to check the employee handbook, check the conversations happening, the, the laws and rights surrounding cancer patients when it comes to employment and what they can do once they're either looking for a job or have received that job. Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, we have statistics now that show individuals who have disclosed in the hiring process are less likely to get hired. Um, So that is an unfortunate reality. 
I will also say for anyone who is interested in learning more about what their rights are around disclosure and privacy and accessing these benefits, at triagecancer.org, under resources by topic, we have a whole page on employment rights, and we have several things where people can read a little bit more and get some more details. That's great to know. And if somebody already has a position and they don't want to disclose to their immediate manager, do they have the option to disclose to their HR office without their immediate manager not knowing? So that is a possibility. We have to remember, though, that not everybody has a formalized HR department. There are lots of different ways that employment settings are constructed. If somebody is trying to do something like ask for medical leave or ask for what's called a reasonable accommodation, then they may have to disclose some information about their medical condition so that the employer knows they're eligible for that benefit. Many employers will lay out a process of how to go about asking for those things. And if that process says, go to your HR department, then you can do that. Now, requests for things like medical leave and reasonable accommodations are supposed to be kept confidential. So the details can't be shared with a supervisor. But certainly, if you know if somebody's getting a reasonable accommodation, let's say, of taking every Friday off for treatment then it stands to reason the direct supervisor needs to be given that information, but not the details as to why they're getting the reasonable accommodation. Sure. Okay. And you mentioned on your website, triagecancer.org, Monica, I just want to emphasize for the listeners how, I mean, I've attended a number of the conferences that you guys have, and one of the topics discussed is about employment issues and working through treatment, taking time off, disability insurance, returning to work. And it's such a great fountain of information for people who may live in the community and in places where there might not be a major center and where they can't get this type of information on a regular basis. So I just want to really encourage listeners to visit triagecancer.org forward slash conferences and see you know the schedule of their upcoming conferences because you can really learn such a great deal about so many different things relating to cancer and navigating throughout insurance and finances and all of those things. Well, thank you so much for that plug. And we certainly appreciate LLS's support of those events. (laughs) No problem. The next question that we have, it was interesting because this was the only question we had about it. And I actually never really thought about this question. It was about creditors. And it said, if any, what type of help can you suggest to help avoid being hassled by creditors regarding bills pertaining to cancer. And the person said that it seems as if mailing them their explanation of their disease is not enough. So they wanted to know what else can be done to keep them at bay. So we actually hear this a lot, unfortunately, because the reality is is that sometimes bills do get sent to collection agencies. We like to help people avoid that from happening, and there's a whole host of ways to do that, including negotiating with providers before things are sent to collections. But there are a host of state and federal laws that have been passed to curb the abusive practices that were happening with debt collectors in the past. And so, I mean, there's there's tons of them, but for example, you know, um, debt collectors can't contact you between certain hours in the evening. They can't contact you repeatedly at work. If you have told a debt collector that you're working with an attorney or a credit counseling agency, they can't continue to contact you. They're supposed to contact the attorney directly. So there really are some things to protect consumers in these circumstances. That's great to hear. Yeah, I didn't know that. It's very interesting. I know that we've gotten a few questions about people who who do have employment-based insurance. And even one person is saying, I worry about the cost of treatment more than the treatment itself. And they are saying that, you know, what happens when the patient will be losing their employer-sponsored health care coverage? They're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And another person does bring into light that they won't be able to afford. Usually when you lose your employment-based insurance, you can pay for your insurance out of pocket for a while, and they won't be able to afford that because usually that's at a higher rate. 
So people are asking, is there anything they can do or anything they can take into consideration if they are losing their insurance through their employer? Sure. Over 50% of Americans get their health insurance from their employer. And so this is a very common question that comes up. There is a federal law called COBRA that allows individuals who work for employers with 20 or more employees to keep the exact same health insurance policy that they had when they were working, even though they're no longer able to work. And there are a couple different qualifying events. If someone is leaving their job for treatment and recovery, they would generally be able to elect COBRA coverage for up to 18 months. Now, the hard part about COBRA is that, as you alluded to, it's expensive because typically when you're working, the employer pays a portion of your premium and you pay a portion of your premium. Well, with COBRA, now you're responsible for 100% of that premium plus sometimes a 2% administrative fee. And so many of us don't appreciate how much our employers pay for health insurance until we're writing that check ourselves. If someone works for a smaller business that doesn't have 20 or more employees, they may be covered under a state COBRA law. And the details vary state to state. And if you're interested in that, at triagecancer.org backslash state laws, we have charts of state laws and that give some more details there. But what's great news is since the Affordable Care Act, we now have more options than ever if we're losing our employer-sponsored insurance. So COBRA may still be a very important option for people. And the reason is, is that if somebody has already met their deductible and their out-of-pocket maximum for the year, then paying those higher monthly premiums and knowing that that's all you're gonna pay for the year may actually make more financial sense than finding a new plan and starting over at zero, trying to meet that deductible and that out-of-pocket maximum. But you have to do the math as we talked about earlier. So people are able to purchase a new plan in a state health insurance marketplace that was created under the Affordable Care Act and they can look at their options at healthcare.gov. But again, they're going to need to do the math and make sure that their providers, their prescription drugs, their facilities are all covered under that new plan. So that's the second option. So COBRA may be an option. Buying a new plan in the marketplace may be an option. Perhaps they can go on a spouse's plan at work. Or if they're under the age of 26, they may be able to rejoin their parents' plan their parents have an employer-sponsored plan. And then finally, they may be eligible for Medicare or Medicaid based on their change in circumstances. Now, the other thing about it that's sort of a little-known secret is some states have a program where they, if somebody's eligible for Medicaid and also eligible for COBRA coverage, the state may actually pay their private COBRA premiums for them, but you have to apply for that if you're eligible. Oh, I didn't know that. That's good to know. Yeah, it's a well-kept secret. <laughs> well, I'm sure you uncovered that secret well on your webpage. <laughs> and that is the purpose of this podcast, is to make sure that we find out what those secrets are and get them to the people that need them. I also just want to say that if someone is sitting there listening to this and thinking, wow, I'd really like to hear all of that again, at triagecancer.org, we actually have a little animated video. It's, I think, about six minutes long, and it walks people through the analysis of how to pick a health insurance plan and actually how to do the math that I know I've said a couple times today. So it might be worthwhile to take a look at that if someone's facing this decision of what do I do, COBRA or a new plan, you know, what are my options? And I think that's really important because it really does bring to light all the things you have to take into consideration. Because I know that most people look at all of these plans and you pretty much look at how much is it going to cost you per month or per year. But as you've said before to us, which I think everybody really needs to know, is that you have to take into consideration your personal needs when choosing a plan because the one that looks like it's going to be the cheapest in the long run may actually be the one that costs the most for you. So I think it's really important. That's exactly right. So most people, because we're not given any other information, 
will pick a plan based on that cheapest monthly premium, mm -hmm. but they don't always look at, well, what's the deductible and what's the out-of-pocket maximum? And for most individuals who are in the midst of cancer treatment, they're going to meet that out-of-pocket maximum. And so people really need to be doing the math where they multiply the monthly premium times 12 and then they add the out-of-pocket maximum. And that's the most that they're gonna pay for the year, assuming that they see in-network providers. So when you do that math, sometimes that plan that's more expensive monthly ends up being cheaper at the end of the year. We also see people not looking at that deductible. So you could have a plan that's cheaper by the end of the year, but has a $6,000 deductible, which means that you have to write a $6,000 check before the plan even starts picking up their share of the costs. And for most of us, we don't have $6,000 laying around to just write that check. So again, something with a higher monthly premium, but a low deductible spreads out what you're paying throughout the year instead of having to come up with that big lump sum. And these are things that, again, none of us are ever taught how to make these choices. Right. And it's important, especially if you have a cancer diagnosis where you know that you're going to, you know, spend a lot of money in the beginning right. of treatment and you are going to reach that deductible quite quickly. Right. I mean, some people will reach their deductible and their out-of-pocket maximum in January based on their treatment. Wow. So our next question is, what do I do if the time period to stay on my employer's insurance through COBRA runs out? So now you're at another point where you have to start making these decisions as to what's next. So when your COBRA runs out, you'll be eligible for what's called a special enrollment period to buy a new plan in the marketplace. So you have 60 days from the date that your COBRA is ending to make those choices. And again, maybe you're eligible for a spouse's plan or a parent's plan, depending on your age. Maybe now you're eligible for Medicare or Medicaid. Or maybe you're at the point now where you're looking for a new job and that new job has employer-sponsored insurance. This question that was submitted said, is there other insurance other than Medicaid or Medicare once your job insurance stops? The COBRA plan is too much for people that have no income coming in. For that person, I would suggest looking at what their options are in the marketplace, because in the health insurance marketplaces set up by the Affordable Care Act, there's also financial assistance, and that financial assistance is based on household size and income. And there's some staggering statistics coming out recently. I think something like half of the individuals who are uninsured in this country would be eligible for a bronze plan for free. Really? Wow. But wow. they just don't know about the marketplace and the financial assistance, and so they're uninsured. Wow. Um, so I would definitely recommend for that person, take a look at what's available to you in the marketplace and what sort of financial assistance you might be eligible for. I would also say if they're eligible for Medicaid, which is based on income in their state, their state may have this program that I referred to. It's called the HIP program where the state may pay their private COBRA premiums instead of paying for all of their care through Medicaid. Wow. Thank you for that. Now, shifting gears a little bit to appealing health insurance. So many patients have a built-in tendency to take no for an answer when it comes to their health insurance. Can you explain a situation in which an appeal was something that was encouraged and ended up changing the outcome for a patient? Appeals are another one of those secrets in this situation. Many patients after a cancer diagnosis at some point through their treatment experience will get a denial from their health insurance company. And we really urge people not to take no for an answer and to utilize the appeals process. And there's generally two different levels of appeal. There's an internal appeal that's done within your own health insurance company where you get to go back and present some more information. And then there's an external appeal, also referred to as independent medical review or external medical review. And some states had this previously, but under the Affordable Care Act, every state is now required to have an external medical review process. 
usually it's done through the Department of Insurance in that state, and it's this independent body that gets to look at all the evidence and then make a decision should the insurance company have paid or not. We have some statistics that upwards of 60% of all appeals are decided in favor of the patient. So 60% of the time, the insurance company gets told, no, you were supposed to pay. Wow. That is a great stat. But people don't know. People don't know that this exists. It's one more burden. It's one more thing that gets placed on the plate of the patient and the caregivers to have to deal with, which is inherently unfair in my opinion. But when you think about this problem of financial toxicity and how challenging finances become after a cancer diagnosis, appealing is just one more way where we can start to address this and deal with the financial impact. But people have to know what it is and how to deal with it. Exactly. Many people don't know about the appeal process and you know, I'm glad that we're we're letting people know. Is it difficult to appeal? Can somebody do it on their own or would they need assistance? So generally speaking, we recommend that um, individuals who are diagnosed and caregivers work with the healthcare team because depending on what the reason for the denial was, you're probably going to need some evidence and some supporting documentation for your appeal. So for example, if the claim is denied because it was experimental or investigational, so let's say it was off-label drug use or a clinical trial, there's a reason why that healthcare team made those treatment decisions. So the patient needs to be collecting that information from the healthcare team to submit it with their appeal. We have a quick guide that we just released earlier this month on our website, totally free to download, where we walk through the steps of how to do an appeal and the types of documentation that can be really helpful. That is such a helpful resource. And like you said, it's it's so unfair because someone, again, is given a diagnosis and then has to learn about the di- their diagnosis, has to then kind of get things in order in regards to treatment and caregiving and all of the stuff. And if it's something like you said, a stat so high as 60% was in favor of the patient, it's then having to, like, like you said, add something else to the list that the person then now has to do, which they shouldn't have to do. Definitely. So I think it's so great that you offer that guide for people to see it in front of them and not feel as if they're kind of chasing their tail, but something is out there to help them. So thank you so much. Now, just shifting gears again (laughs) to financial aid. Someone said that it seems like there are various resources for financial aid for the young and the old, but there doesn't seem to be much help for those who fall in between. Do you see this as a common concern? And also, what financial assistance do you know of can be provided for caregivers who may live elsewhere but may need to travel to help the patient? The topic of financial aid is such a tricky one. There are some fantastic financial assistance resources out there. Certainly LLS provides some great ones. But the reality is is there just isn't enough to go around to solve everybody's every problem. Certainly when we talk about governmental programs, it usually is income-based or age-based. But there are some fantastic private foundations and resources out there. At cancerfinances.org, we have culled some uh, financial assistance resources and categorized them. Generally speaking, when I talk to people who are looking for financial assistance resources, I urge them to be as creative as possible and to think outside the box. It's really easy to get tunnel vision when we're dealing with these crises. For example, you know, I need help paying for my prescription drugs. That's the thing I can't afford. But as I sort of talk with people, I I try to get them to think about, well, what do you have money set aside for? Maybe you have money set aside for utilities, your utility payments, your gas bill. Well, maybe we can get you utility assistance so that you can shift those funds to pay for your prescription drugs. And that's, of course, just one example, but it's hard and it takes a lot of legwork and a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, you know, you may put out 50 applications for financial assistance and only get one thing back. So it's certainly not a uh, foolproof system. But when we talk about finances and how to reduce the financial barrier, we want people to be thinking about it in the most holistic and wide way possible. And the number one way to do that is to make sure people have adequate health insurance. 
so that their out-of-pocket costs are as low as possible, but then also to utilize some of these other programs that I've been talking about. And I know that over the years, we've been wondering about any changes with any of the public insurance. And, you know, I've been waiting to see if the folks under the age of 26 that could be on their parents' insurance, if that's going to change anytime soon. Any changes that we should know about for our cancer constituents? Well, it's really interesting that you bring that up because there are constantly changes occurring. One of the things about the Affordable Care Act is it's a huge law and there's so many moving pieces to it and there's state regulations and federal regulations and court cases. So there have been lots of changes since it was first signed in 2010. One of the biggest changes that we continue to see is which states have decided to expand their Medicaid programs. So originally in Medicaid, someone had to have a low income and a low asset level, which is like bank accounts or retirement accounts, and they had to fall into another category. So typically people who were diagnosed with cancer would fall into what's called the Age, Blind, and Disabled Program. It's the worst name ever for a program, but that's what it's called. That is definitely the worst name for a program. <laughs> yeah, it's, it really is terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and it's a really high standard to get into that. So it was leaving people who couldn't meet that high standard of disability or people who maybe had a retirement account where they would literally have to spend it all in order to be eligible for Medicaid. And so the Affordable Care Act said, let's create a new category of people who are gonna be eligible for Medicaid and it's just gonna be based on income. So if you have a low income, then you're gonna be eligible. And it was supposed to happen across the country. Well, the Supreme Court got their hands on the Affordable Care Act and essentially made that voluntary for states. And so over the last handful of years, we've seen states decide to expand their Medicaid program or not decide or go back. And this is the thing that changes most frequently. And we actually have a chart on our website where we try to keep track of where states are. But we also, as elections happen and states get new governors and new legislatures, that changes state to state. So that's a big thing that people should be keeping their eye on. And then the other thing is there's currently a court case working its way through the courts that could have a huge impact on the cancer community. And that case is Texas v. U.S. And in that case, a Texas judge has ruled the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Wow. Yeah. It's currently sitting at the appeals court, and I'll spare you all the super intricate legal analysis about what's going on, but essentially, we could see the Affordable Care Act end up back at the Supreme Court, and there is a potential for the law to be ruled unconstitutional, where we would then go back to the days of people being denied purchasing health insurance because of a pre-existing condition, where young adults couldn't stay on their parents' plan unless there was a state law that said otherwise, um, where all of these consumer protections that we've now become used to in the last five years are eliminated essentially in the stroke of a pen. That is so terrifying. It really is. It really is. And we're trying to keep track of what's happening. And certainly as things happen, and if we get a decision, we'll be posting that on our blog. But we really think that, uh, at least in my experience, in my everyday life, the average American has no idea that this is happening in the court system. And it's pretty scary. Wow. And I know you said you didn't want to get into the intricacies of this, but what are, I'm curious to know, how is it being labeled as unconstitutional? Sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, uh, listeners. In <laughs> so, in 2017, Congress passed a uh, resolution where they reduced the penalty for not having insurance to zero dollars. And so when that happened, two gentlemen in Texas, plus the Texas Attorney General, plus several other Republican states attorneys general filed suit in Texas saying that now that that penalty is zero, 
the Affordable Care Act should be ruled unconstitutional because then Congress didn't have the power to write this law. Really, a zero penalty means no penalty, which means that you don't have to actually purchase it. Yeah, it has to do with the constitutional powers of how Congress is allowed to write laws. And so there's, you know, there's some constitutional arguments here. But what's really fascinating about this is the Department of Justice is the federal agency that is supposed to step into court and defend federal laws. Well, when this case was brought, the Department of Justice said, we're not coming to court to defend the law. So then... (laughs) You had, yeah, the California Attorney General with a handful of other attorneys generals ask the court, can we step in to defend the law? So we will take the place of the Department of Justice. And the court said yes. So it's a very interesting legal situation that we're in. This is very uncommon. When we got the new Congress after the election, the House of Representatives also passed a resolution saying we would also like to join the attorneys generals that are defending the Affordable Care Act, and the court said okay. Well, now that we're at the appeals court, there is a question of if it was appropriate for the Texas court to allow the state's attorneys generals and the House of Representatives to defend the law, if they had standing to defend the law and to then therefore appeal the law. And so that's where we're sitting right now. We're waiting to hear from the Fifth Circuit court if that was in fact permissible. So if the court comes back and says those those groups didn't have standing, then there's two things that could happen. One, the Texas judge's ruling stands and the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, or the Fifth Circuit could come back and say, start over from the beginning and rehear the case. Really, every American should want to know because it's going to impact all of us. Because there's a sort of this misconception that the Affordable Care Act only matters if you don't have insurance, and that's just not the case. It has touched almost every aspect of our healthcare system. Hospitals have a vested interest in this. Insurance companies have a vested interest. It's provided us protections as consumers of healthcare, even if you get your insurance through an employer. So frankly, in my opinion, this is something all of us should be caring about. But again, it's so technical and it's very theoretical at this point that I think a lot of people just don't know what's going on. It's definitely not on prime time. It is not. And part of the problem as my long-winded explanation demonstrates is that when the news channels can't explain the complexities of all of this in one of their, you know, two-minute news segments. So even if they do talk about it, it, it generally isn't the whole story. Right. I think one of the biggest things is the people who have insurance already that do not have insurance through the Affordable Care Act, so mostly through private insurance through their employer, may not think that any kind of decision with the Affordable Care Act has anything to do with them, that there's no implications because they're already paying through their employer and they feel that it's just going to impact people that are on the Affordable Care Act. And you just said that it would impact all of us, correct? Absolutely. This is not just about people who receive Medicaid or people who purchase a plan through the marketplace. The consumer protections, for example, one of the consumer protections that the Affordable Care Act provided was it said that insurance companies can't place annual or lifetime limits on the dollar amounts that they're going to pay out for somebody's care. That impacts you if you have employer-sponsored insurance. We would go back to the days where insurance companies could place limits, and we saw limits like $75,000 a year. And once you hit your cost of care being more than $75,000, they just stopped paying. When you start to think about cancer care, you can reach those limits very quickly. So that's just one example of a protection that the Affordable Care Act gave us that would go away. That's very important for us to know really for our cancer constituents to to really understand that. Because with the new cancer medications, the new developments, new treatments, there are some new treatments that are half a million dollars. So that's very important 
for our constituents to know. And remember, we've had lots of questions about, well, what happens if I stop working due to my cancer? What am I going to do for insurance? Well, before the Affordable Care Act, really, the only option was COBRA. And COBRA doesn't last forever. And again, it's still a good option for some people in some circumstances, Mm -hmm. but it was the only option. It was not that long ago where we were in a time where you got health insurance and you held on to it for dear life because you had no idea if you were going to be able to get another plan once you had a pre-existing condition. And a pre-existing condition doesn't have to be cancer. Right. It could be high blood pressure or diabetes or acne or mm-hmm. pregnancy are all things that were considered pre-existing conditions where people could be denied or charged more prior to the Affordable Care Act. So it's funny to me because in the last five years since we've had these protections, I think we've all gotten very comfortable in this new world we live in, but it was not that long ago that things were very, very different. So, you know, for us to go back to that world is quite terrifying. Absolutely. Monica, is there any common question or anything that you feel like we didn't mention or that you think is worth mentioning for our listeners? I think we've covered most of it. So Monica, along with all of the things that we mentioned today, just shows how complex and technical this world is. So we cannot thank you enough for all the work that you're doing for cancer patients and their caregivers. Well, right back at you. We are delighted to have LLS as a partner. For those listening who may have a question pertaining to any of the things we discussed today or have questions that may have not been answered, please visit www.lls.org forward slash support for a list of all of our resources. You can also call an information specialist at 1-800-955-4572, Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Please also visit www.triagecancer.org for educational materials and resources on practical and legal issues. The links that we mentioned on today's episode will be listed below this episode. So please also comment below with how you liked this episode as well. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.